Our Father, we do rejoice in grace. And our whole lives are of grace. By grace, you sent your Son to bear the penalty for our sin, our offenses, our guilt, our condemnation. O Christ, you and your union with humanity have become for us Savior. And it is by grace that we know you as such, for it is the grace of the Spirit who moved us from death to life to see the glory that was hidden to our eyes, to release us from the bondage and the slavery of sin, to be slaves of righteousness and slaves to our Lord. It is indeed grace in which we stand and grace in which we grow and grace in which we ground our hope. And so I pray that as... We come together this morning together to hear your word that it would strengthen us in grace, that it would encourage our hope, set our affections on the things above, and encourage us to live faithfully in this world to the glory of Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to come again to the introduction of the first letter of Peter. And as we have a communion this morning, we have a little bit less time, but I have a lot more notes. So uh, I'm going to try to not make this a, a three to four part introduction to the letter of First Peter. And we will generally try to move rather quickly. But there is so much here. And really what Peter is doing at the beginning of this letter is setting for us the themes that he'll unfold in a variety of ways as he continues this letter of encouragement to those he's writing to. Those who are in need of a word of encouragement, those who are suffering, those who are feeling the pressures of living in a world that is not in love with Christ and that does not seek his honor and his glory. And that really introduces us, let me remind you again, to the theme of Peter, the theme of First Peter. Why is he writing this book and what is he establishing in these opening verses? And it is essentially this, for his original readers and for us and for the church, always until the Lord returns, it is that we would lay hold of our identity in Christ and every spiritual reality that is attended with being in Christ. It sets our worldview, our perspective on everything. It's through this that we view all of our circumstances in light of God's trying work of salvation and his purpose in salvation and in suffering. And so this matter of identity then is crucial to every Christian. It's crucial to every Christian. It is true, however, that it's more acutely felt to those who are under suffering, to those who are bearing some kind of consequence in this world that makes them feel that there is a price to follow Christ. We read it in our, or sang it in our songs about the cross of Christ, taking up our cross and following Him. We often in our lives here know little of that, but some of us know the cost of following Christ. There's maybe just the cost of following righteousness, making righteous decisions that bring consequences that could have been avoided by sin, by deception, by compromise. I watched, a, or am watching, taking in a little bits, a documentary of, uh, some, from the Hasidic Jew community and what is involved in leaving that community. Now, these aren't leaving for the sake of Christ, but nonetheless, they're leaving that community is a picture here of the, the kind of ostracization that they feel, the kind of exclusion that they feel, and sometimes even physical violence. And our brethren around the world 
feel that for their identity with Christ, uh, that they're excluded from those groups that accepted them before. Jesus put it in Matthew 10 and said, even the members of your own household will hate you and they'll turn on you and even children giving over their parents to persecution and, and so forth. The point is, is that Scripture always reminds us that there is a cost to following Christ. Paul said, I mentioned it last week, and you're well familiar with that all those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer. That's a promise. It's a promise. And it will come to us in some way, some shape, and some form. And so here he's writing to a group of people who are feeling different levels and different kinds of suffering for bearing the name of Christ. Some were being maligned. Some were being mistreated, some were being persecuted in a variety of forms, but all of them were suffering some level of consequence for identifying with the name of Christ. And so here's that sort of double-edged sword then that's being identified right at the beginning, that very name of Christ that his people identify with that we bear as being his children is the cause for the persecution, But at the same time, for us as Christians, that same name that we bear is the foundation of our great encouragement, of our great hope, because it's all bound in God's work in Christ. And this is where Peter points us this morning, and where he points his readers, and as he will, of course, throughout the entire letter. It is our identification with Christ that is paramount. It's both the means of the world's hatred, and it's the means of our great comfort. And so he's writing to comfort them in that identification because of the grace of God that has been extended to them and to us in that great name and great work of Jesus Christ. Now there's three ways that uh, we've broken this up. They are this, that we are to recognize God's grace in scripture, to be encouraged by God's eternal grace that we partake of, and to rest assured in the present fullness of God's grace in our life. We covered the first two yesterday, and we'll cover the second half of this this morning. But let me go ahead and read the passage, but I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm actually going to read the passage out of the American Standard Version, 1901. Why am I going to do that? Because I think they best captured the sense here. I'll remind us of what, briefly of what we looked at last week on some of the translation issues here. Uh, but I think that the, the American Standard Version uh, caught it well. So you, you can read along if you want, but... Uh, it won't, it won't be word for word. So let me read out of the American Standard Version. These first two verses. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience... And sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Tremendous, tremendous opening and a tremendous encouragement to us. Let me just remind us briefly of where we were last week and then move into where we'll go today. And the first is just very simply to recognize God's grace in giving us scripture. Not just in giving us scripture, but in the very manner in which he has given us scripture. He begins here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is a man whom we are familiar with that was acquainted with suffering. He was acquainted with failure. He was acquainted with deep shame at having failed the Lord when put to the test. 
But he's also a man who learned the lessons of faith. He grew from these failures. He came to taste the grace and the mercy of God in a unique way because of those failures. And so Peter is a man uniquely shaped by God to write with us with a sense of compassion, with a sense of understanding, with a sense of being able to comfort us with the comfort with which he has been comforted. To borrow Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. He writes as a humbled man, humbled man who had been brought low, but who knew the sufficiency of God's grace and trial. He had tasted God's mercy and he had uniquely seen Christ's glory. So he's a man who writes from experience. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes as a man who not only brings this truth to us, but illustrates it by his very own person and life experiences as they're recorded for us in the Word of God. And so there's a grace of God in this, in that he's given us his word with authority, but through the agency of men who write with the ability to comfort, again, as they have been comforted, as those who have been instructed in these very things. And so there's a, there's a particular mercy of God. There's, there's really even a big broader principle than that that the writer of Hebrews mentions that Christ himself became flesh so that he might be a sympathetic and faithful high priest. There's even in God's own incarnation in the Son that principle of walking in the road and overcoming the, the difficulties and that we ourselves face that he might not only be our savior, but that he might be sympathetic to us. So that's the first point. The second point was this, is that we are to be encouraged then by God's eternal grace. Eternal grace. And grace is really one of the main themes. Some would argue that it is the main theme of all of First Peter. Grace, grace. They would get that actually, those who... Hold that position in verse 10 of chapter 5. Let me just read it. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So First Peter is a message of grace and of the hope that springs from it. And those are generally the two themes that are assigned to Peter here. Hope, that it's a message of hope and it is a message of grace and those things, of course, are bound together. Now, who is Peter writing to? And again, this is by way of reminder. He writes here to the elect and sojourners of the dysphoria, as it was put in the ASV. But we noted there's a couple of, there's a couple of issues here in terms of how we are to identify uh, these people and what Peter's actually saying here. And I mention this because the different translations will reflect these two different understandings, and I just want you to be aware of that. And the New American Standard understands the term elect here to be the main noun in this opening, uh, this opening introduction. And that the term sojourners is then supplying uh, more information about those who are the elect, the main group, and talking about them then as sojourners and exiles and so forth. The ESV takes sojourners or aliens to be the main noun and that term elect actually to be an adjective modifying the noun. Not to be too grammatical here, but, but that's going to be reflected in, in your translation. It's going to say elect exiles, elect exiles. And so there is a question here of what Peter's emphasis is. Is he talking about the elect who are sojourners, which is reflected actually in the American Standard Version, or is he talking about exiles who happen to be uh, elect and therefore kind of viewing their whole situation? It's a difficult decision, and each gives a particular nuance, 
But I would just emphasize this, that the primary and core truths that, people, that Peter is identifying is true of both those versions. So whether you're reading it out of the ESV or the New American Standard, and it is this, that God's people are a chosen people. And as a result of their being chosen and identified with Christ, they are sojourners and strangers in this world, and that bears consequences. And that's the big idea of either way. Being identified with Christ bears consequences. But it also is a mark of great privilege. There is a second point to recognize here. There is discussion on whether the idea of sojourners here is to be taken strictly literally. In other words, these are who are actually displaced from their homes and their homelands and living in foreign lands. Or if it's to be taken strictly metaphorically. In other words, just as uh, a category or a description of Christians who live in this world uh, that is not their home. Again, I would just simply say, and is not my opinion alone, but where I would land on this, is that there's really no need to make such a sharp either-or distinction. The occasion of Peter's writing, as well as the naming of these areas in Asia Minor, as we mentioned, modern-day Turkey, suggests that these readers are those who have experienced, or at least some of these readers, some kind of exile, some kind of displacement, some kind of removal from their homelands as a testimony or because of their faith in Christ. One has even suggested that it might be, uh, that Peter might be referring to a group who were colonized by the emperor uh, Claudius. That's actually a possibility. But the point here is that some of them are actually exiles. They are actually out of their homelands. That's why Peter is writing and de- 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 describing them as such. And this comes out too by his use of the term dysphoria. Again, in the New American Standard, it just simply says scattered throughout these lands. But the term is actually diaspora. And it refers to a scattering in a sense. But it particularly then connects to an Old Testament reality of the diaspora of the Jews. And we won't cover all that again. But when God judged his people, both by the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians, they were put out of Jerusalem and spread throughout uh, various lands, and they were known as the Diaspora. Many of these Jews had adopted the Greek culture and so on and so forth. This is referred to in John 7.35 and James 1.1. But here, he's, he's not likely referring directly to those Jews who were scattered about who were part of the Diaspora, and probably most likely because he doesn't use the definite article here as he does in other places. In other words, he doesn't say the Diaspora, just Diaspora, using it broadly. And so he's most likely drawing a broad analogy, identifying the people of God spread abroad in lands that are not their true home, which for every Christian is yet to come at Christ's return. So there are literal exiles among them, displaced as a result of their faith in Christ, but it is only a reminder, their exile, of the greater reality that's true for all of Christians, and that is that this world is not our home. Our citizenship in heaven is in heaven. We are sojourners in this land. This is a a temporary place of our existence. Our true home, our true citizenship is yet in the heavenlies to be with Christ forever, ultimately in resurrected bodies. It's the idea of Hebrews 11. Don't turn there. When he's talking about the faith of those who've gone before, he says, these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them, the promises, and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers And exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country not their own. And that's the idea here of Peter. 
that those who walk by faith, all of us who are identified with Christ, are walking, living on promises of our home that is yet to come. This isn't it. It's, it's easy to feel settled here. It's easy to feel comfortable And God, as he did with these believers, and sometimes in our own life, disrupts that comfort by a particular suffering or trials and cost that comes along with being named a Christian to remind us that this isn't our home. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We do belong to another country. We belong to the kingdom of Christ. And so he's reminding them of this. He's connecting them with this greater reality of their identity with Christ. Let me just read to you a second century apologist in a letter known called the Letter of Diognetus. Diognetus, excuse me. He described it in this way, it captures it, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next point. For Christians, he says, he writes, quote, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in, their, in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. Why they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. At the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but, not on, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And so it is with us. And so last week we ended on this idea, this reminder that we are strangers and foreigners in this world. Our true home is in the heavenlies with Christ. It is in the kingdom of righteousness. I want to look at the other part of this description. The act of being elect. Not only are we sojourners, we are elect who are sojourners. And when we put these two ideas together, really we get a more complete picture of our identity in Christ. A more complete picture. Really viewed horizontally and vertically. Horizontally and vertically. And I think that's the idea of what Peter is doing with these two descriptions. Horizontally, of course, as just mentioned, we're sojourners. And and the point of recognizing that is he's defining our relationship with this world. In other words, again, this is not our home. He's defining our relationship with our culture, our relationship with every other kind of relationship that we have in this world. It's not ultimate. What's ultimate is our home, again, with Christ. So why we have the very real circumstances and of living and residing in a place that is not ultimately our home, we then relate to one another uniquely as citizens as of another country. And this... This reality is because of our identity in Christ. And so there's a horizontal aspect to it. But then there's a vertical reality too. And really the vertical reality, that is our relationship with God, is what then defines our horizontal reality. And that's what he picks up in the idea of the elect. Or in some translations, the chosen. The chosen ones. That's who we are. Every person in this room who knows Jesus Christ truly by faith is chosen by God, is elect of God, is predestined of God. And that's what he's reminding these people of. You are not simply strangers, but you are strangers specifically because you have been chosen by God out of this world into another. 
ultimately into that world again and the kingdom of Christ. And so elect then defines our relationship with God. Sojourners, our relationship to this world, elect our relationship with God, and it is then the dominant identification for us as the people of God. It is then to show that we have been brought by God's own doing into intimate fellowship with himself in Christ, to share in his life, to share in every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I don't know what you hear when you hear the word elect, every single person, or when you hear the word chosen. But what you should hear is one of the most comforting, encouraging, endearing, and worship-producing realities that we could ever hear from the written word of God. That is the point of it. To be called elect of God is to be immediately identified with the eternal love of God in His Son. The eternal purposes of God in glorifying His Son and in all of those who are in His Son who will share in that glory. We should hear then the eternal love of God. It signals us as God's people in Christ, the recipients and participants of His eternal love for the Son and His gracious purposes in Him. Now there's an aspect here then where Peter, who has a very Jewish flavor throughout this letter, is making a dim connection with the old covenant people of God. They were also the elect of God, chosen among all of the nations on the earth. He chose Isaac to be the son of promise. God chose Jacob to be the son in whom the promise that he gave would continue on. And then through his 12 sons, who would become the progenitors of the nation of Israel. And he chose then that nation of Israel among all the nations of the earth. This is always God's way. Listen to what he says. Just listen to some of these. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, as he's preparing the second generation to enter into the land, reminding them of their identity as the people of God, their covenant commitments to God, As the only true God, he says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. God has chosen you. He did not choose others, but he chose you. He says again, you are in chapter 14, verse 2, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, you have a unique identity. You have a unique position within the purposes of God. He says it in one more, 1 Chronicles 16, 13. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. His chosen ones. And here, then Peter takes that identity... And he attaches it to those who are now identified with the name of Christ and says, you are the chosen ones of God, of all of the people on the face of the earth. You have been chosen. You are the elect. And while that idea was attached to the old covenant nation of Israel as the people of God... The New Testament, with the appearing of Christ, expands that and takes it all the way back to an eternal reality. 
saying you're not merely the elect nation of people through whom God would work, give his covenant and his promises through whom the Messiah would come, but you are a people who has been elect from all eternity past to be in his son and to know the full reality of forgiveness of sin and redemption in Christ Jesus. In other words, and by doing this, he's reframing their situation. He's taking them out of their probably confused identity. Where do I belong in this world? And he's reframing their entire situation and he's placing it within an eternal perspective and saying far beyond any displacement you might face in this world, you are the chosen of God. That is your identity. Not a country, not a human family, but the elect of God. Now listen to how he describes it. You're familiar with this. but Let me mention it again. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. In love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which he be freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It is a work of God in love. It is an eternal work of God in love. That before he created a single molecule of our universe, he had determined to redeem a people and to bring them into union with his son. A people whom he knew would fall into sin, but a people whom he knew who he would redeem. So to be called the elect is to say that you have been eternally loved by the Father. You have been eternally chosen to be brought into the most intimate union with His Son through Christ, who is the Son incarnate. So when you hear the term chosen or election or predestined, do not think of it merely as a doctrinal system. That's usually what you hear, right? A doctrinal system. That's Calvinism. That's, that's this rigid, very narrow view of God only chooses some and others he excludes. I'm not going to get into all of that. But I will say this. The way that scripture defines it and the way that Peter here uses it is to say when you hear that word of God that you are the elect people of God you should hear that you are eternally loved by the Father in His Son. And you should find much comfort in that, much encouragement. should immediately speak to our hearts and produce in us great love to the Father for His saving work, great love to the Son for His redeeming work on our behalf, and great hope in being with Him forever. To be elect is to say we've been called from the condemnation that is surely coming on this world who remains unrepentant. A world and a condemnation of which we were a part and have been brought into this new reality of the eternal love of the Father. He says you are elect. You are chosen. You are a people, though suffering and displaced from your land, though bearing consequences for the name of Christ, 
You are a people who have been chosen by the eternal God of the universe. Him who is Lord of all. And it is a Trinitarian work. Let's, if you're in the New American Standard, you can. it follows right after the chosen. Actually, there's quite a few words that uh, separate this word chosen or elect and his description in verse 3. But he says in verse 3, he unfolds us some more. He says, or excuse me, verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. In other words, this work of grace, this work of election, while originating in the Father, while accomplished by the Son, while applied by the Spirit, is a work of the divine Godhead together. Now, the term Trinity, of course, didn't come about until later. But that was merely a way to define and sharply explain that biblical reality of the triune nature of God in Scripture against heresies and false views of God that had risen up. Here, Peter clearly attaches our salvation to the work of God as Father, as Spirit, and Son. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Three persons doing three kinds of work, if you will, for our salvation. And there's, I just will mention this, there is a, there is a picture here, and we see this in many places throughout Scripture, of what theologians like to call, and I'll just give it to you, because once we grasp it, it's really an amazing truth, as you think of all of the works of God in Scripture. And the fancy word for it, or the fancy description, is called the inseparable operations of God. That sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? The inseparable operations of God. But that simply communicates this one glorious truth that Peter is laying before us here and that all of Scripture does. And it simply means this, that every work of God involves each person of the Trinity. Every work of God, in every work of God, each person of the Trinity is acting in that work consistent with their eternal relations to one another as Father and Son and Spirit. Here, as in throughout Scripture, you will never find this pattern broken in every single place. It is here the Father who plans, who ordained, who adopted, who chose, and who elect a group of people. It is the Son who, in obedience to the Father, united himself to humanity and in the person of Jesus Christ, the promise, the Messiah, the son of David, redeemed those people by giving his life, his body, as an atonement for their sin. Who then rose from the dead by his own power and the power and the glory of the Father to ascend to the right hand of the Father and send God the Holy Spirit to apply that work to his chosen ones that they might participate in that redemption accomplished by Christ. Each in their own work, and yet that work of salvation being the work of God in His triune glory. And that's what Peter unfolds for us here. Now I'm going to have to go through these quickly, and we're going to be going through them again as we go on. But let's just consider that for a bit. Now he gives in verse 2, Three phrases. If you love all things grammar, there are three prepositional phases. There's three phrases that are describing this, this work of God. He says, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by or in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Better there is unto obedience and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll explain that in just a minute. Now again, as with uh, many of these verses here, there is a question. Are these three phrases describing all of verse 1? Or are they particular descriptions of the elect? If you'll notice again in the New American Standard, they put chosen actually out of the word order of the Greek text and they put it at the bottom of the list of those countries so they could more clearly connect it with these three phrases. In other words, those translators are saying then that these three phrases directly refer to conversion and that identity of being the elect of God. The English Standard Version puts elect exiles up and then right after following the list of countries then gives these three phrases and they're indicating that no, they're connecting it to that entire situation. The entire situation that he has just described. Again, like with some of the other issues, while the nuance is different, in the end, either choice includes both elements. In other words, either choice identifies believers as God's elect who are eternally known by God experiencing the sanctifying work of the Spirit and are marked by obedience to Christ and as participants of His redeeming work. That's the main idea, and that's really the big idea here to understand. So let's just look at these. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is such a precious phase, phrase. And there's so much here. So much here. And this would be so comforting again to those who are suffering some kind of estrangement in their situations and to some here and others who experience that because of their faith in Christ. It's meant to give such encouragement, such encouragement. Let's notice two things in this phrase briefly. One is he says, blessed be the God, oh, excuse me, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice first his identification of God as Father. God is Father. This isn't some universal fatherhood of God, as liberal theologians would have us believe, in terms of He's the Father of everyone equally as Creator. There's a partial truth in that. He is Creator of all, and in that sense is the originator of all mankind. But that's not how He's using it here. He is uniquely the Father eternally of Christ who before the incarnation is the eternal Son of God. Christ being His identification after the incarnation. Always the eternal Son. He's God the Father. God the Father of Christ. God the eternal Father of the Son. And here it is a particular comfort to those He writes to and to us because He's also the Father of us in Christ as sons and daughters. That's such a precious, precious description. He's our Father. He's not simply the Father. He's our Father in Christ. Jesus said it this way in John 20, 17. After the resurrection, He says, I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. That means in Christ, beloved, through union with Christ, God is your Father not merely by creation, but by redemption and by adoption. God has chosen 
before the foundation of the world to adopt you to participate in his own family, familial love for his son. You are eternally loved by the Father with the same kind of love with which he has eternally loved the Son. That is amazing. But notice secondly here, this reality is according to the foreknowledge, he says, of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God the Father. Now again, when some hear this word, they hear merely a statement about God's omniscience. In other words, his perfect knowledge of all things. That God knows all things, therefore he knows all things that will come to be. All things that will happen. Is when an Arminian, in fact, those who are of that camp or persuasion, reads this words, they hear this in foreknowledge of God the Father. They hear that this foreknowledge is God who knows all things and in his omniscient glory, seeing who would choose him, who would embrace his son by faith, and then they then take on the identification of elect. That God receives them as his elect ones and his chosen ones. Well, first of all, that's not election, that's acceptance. And that's not what it means. But second of all, that's not what this word means here. That's not what it means. And nor is that the comfort that Peter intends for us to receive from this word. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The term includes the idea of God's omniscience. Him knowing the end from the beginning. But even more declaring the end from the beginning. It's not merely a knowledge of what will happen, but it's knowledge that is inextricable. In other words, it's unseparatable. It's intimately bound and forever bound to the will and the purposes of God. In other words, it's not simply a knowledge of events. It's a knowledge that God purposes to bring about. Let me just very briefly mention this because we will come against it later. The verbal form is used for in Romans 11.2, speaking of Israel. And he speaks of Israel as those whom he foreknew. It didn't simply mean that God knew that miraculously there would be this nation of Israel that comes up. And then those are the ones he was going to choose to be his people. It was God who formed those people who called Abraham out of his pagan lifestyle. It was God who made his choice that would eventually become the nation of Israel whom he promised to enter into covenant with as a nation. He chose that. God did that. Oh, many other places we won't get into. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined ultimately to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God's knowledge is that which he determines to bring about. Matter of fact, he's going to use another form of this word in verse 20. Speaking of Christ, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. He's not simply saying that he knew somebody named Christ would exist, that Christ would be who he was, and that he would choose him. That's nonsensical. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world because God had elected a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was determined before God created anything that the Son would unite himself to flesh to redeem a people. He was foreknown because he was foreloved. And that really becomes the more significant issue here. God did not simply know that Christ, the Son in flesh, would be born He knew him intimately. 
and he knew what he would accomplish in him. And we share then in that same foreknowing and forework of God. He foreknew Christ and he foreknew those who would be in Christ. And that is here. He foreknew his elect as their father. He would become their father in Christ. And there's a double encouragement here too. While it has a, an emphasis in many ways of this work of bringing his chosen ones into relationship with Christ. There's a double encouragement here because it also reminds them that all of their circumstances are according as well to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That God has brought this about. God your Father has brought this about. He has brought you into union with His Son and He has determined everything that you will experience because of or by virtue of that union. As a matter of fact, he'll say in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Trials that God brought about to affirm your faith. As a matter of fact, he speaks this way similarly, as he uses the term in Acts 2.23. Speaking of Christ and his suffering, he said, This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew precisely the circumstances. Indeed, he ordained them by which his son was to suffer and experience the shame and the humiliation and ultimately the death and sin-bearing death on the cross. And he says, that's the same knowledge that God exercises towards you. It was the same knowledge that comes from an eternal love for you. It's the same knowledge that is superintending and providentially guiding all of the circumstances of your life to accomplish His glory in your life. And He's doing so as your Father. He also says in sanctification of the Spirit or by sanctification of the Spirit. You are those who have been set apart by the Spirit unto this reality. Now the idea of that is translated here as sanctification is the same idea, the root word, root term, behind which is often translated also as holy. And there's a lot of nuances of that. But it has a basic idea of being separated. That's a, that's a basic root idea of it, to be separated. In the old time, things, the Testament, things were made holy by being separated to the work of God, the worship of God, whether it be temple items, whether it be the people of Israel as a nation set apart to God, and so forth. It is to be set apart unto God. There's, there's three ways, really, that this idea is used in Scripture. Let me just briefly mention them to you, this idea of sanctification. It's, it's referred to sometimes as the position of believers. That's called, fancy word, positional sanctification. In other words, it is to say that by this determination of God, He has taken a people whom He set apart by His Spirit. He has removed them from the realities of this sin-cursed world and under condemnation, and He has put them into the position, a new position, no longer under condemnation and death and darkness, but into the position of being in His kingdom, in His beloved Son, now as members of His family. We won't look at these, but you could just jot down 1 Corinthians 6.11 for an example of that. You're a new position of being in union with Christ. 
He refers to it sometimes as progressive sanctification, and that is this ongoing work of the Spirit within a believer, enabling them and motivating them to be separate from sin in their life and separated unto righteousness and obedience and holiness in Christ. That's progressive sanctification. That's mentioned in many places. Romans 6 is a great one. 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me just read you one verse so you can hear an idea of this. He says, Just as you've presented your body, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. It's the idea of Philippians. God is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. It's progressive sanctification. And then there's a final kind of sanctification that's talked about, and it could be described as perfected sanctification. There's positional, there's progressive, and perfective. And that looks at this final end of God's design and setting apart a people for himself, and that is that they would be perfectly conformed to the image of his Son. Let me give you one verse. Now, 1 John 3, 2... He says, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Paul says we will be perfectly conformed to the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. What is he referring to here? Is he referring to this work of the Spirit by which he simply set them apart out of the world, positional? Is he referring to his ongoing sanctifying work, making this people holy unto God? What does he mean? Well, I think he means us to see both. Both of those realities. And both of those realities are reflected in Scripture. And in, excuse me, in First Peter. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Well, he certainly is including this positional work of sanctification because he has set them out. These are the elect of God, chosen out of the world. They are separated by the Spirit. He'll say it this way in verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You have been set apart for the purposes of God. But he also means here for them to see that being set apart for the purposes of God means that you will also experience in your circumstances and understand them to be a purifying work of God for your holiness. Say that in verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. And those are all the instructions, the imperatives throughout the whole rest of the letter. So he means us to see both. But particularly to these people, it's an encouragement in this way. It gives them perspective and understanding of their circumstances. He's saying, essentially, the encouragement is this. As the people of God, chosen and elect by the Father, recipients of His eternal love, as the people of God, you have been set apart by the Spirit... And all of the circumstances you find yourself in now are a reflection of this sanctifying work of the Spirit who has not only set you apart to Christ but has determined the circumstances that will form you into the image of Christ. That gives us perspective on all of our trials. Again, I read it earlier. He said this. What you're experiencing are various trials... According to the will of God, he says in verse 7, so that, in other words, God's purpose behind bringing them is that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
These things that you are experiencing are a part of the sanctifying work of God in your life. They are providing for you the opportunity and the means by which you will glorify God. You will prove the reality of your faith to the watching world. And therefore, your life will be a means of rebounding and redounding to the glory of God in Christ and His saving work. So it gives perspective. It gives perspective to them. It gives perspective to us. Is that how you think of your present trials? Do you view your trials and the things that might come into your life as you pursue righteousness, as you pursue faithfulness to Christ? Do you view them as merely impediments to your joy and your happiness, bummers of God's providence? Or do you view them as the means by your heavenly Father who has chosen you and brought you into union with His Son to be conformed to the image and the likeness of His Son, to prove your faith and to make you more holy that you might share in His righteousness and share in His holiness? How do you view your trials? Peter is calling us here to view them as a part of God's sanctifying work through the Spirit who is at work in us. He's sanctifying you. He's sanctifying me. He's sanctifying us as the people of God and making us more holy. Let me very briefly just mention this last. He been in obedience to the sprinkling in the blood of Jesus Christ. What does he mean here? Well, we need to wrap up and get to the table. We won't have time for that. But let me just mention this, and I'll just have to mention it quickly. He's, he's pulling out, and you'll have to mark this down in your Bibles, of Exodus chapter 24, particularly verses 1 through 10 there. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 10. And this is when the people have been called out of the land. God is giving them his law. He's sanctifying. He's cleansing his people. He's symbolizing that. Moses tells them what the will of God is. The people said, whatever God says, we will do. Moses takes the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkles it not on the book as he would later with the tabernacle, but he sprinkles it on the people, marking them out as a people who have been cleansed by sacrifice, the blood of sacrifice. Peter is pulling those two ideas together here and marvelously putting them within the context of the new covenant in Christ, which we'll celebrate here in the Lord's table. In other words, they were a people who were set apart by God unto obedience and were ceremonially cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood, and yet they were a people who ultimately failed to enjoy all of the covenant blessings and promises because of their sin. In the Old Covenant, and this should help you frame this, the Word of God and the Law of God and the commandments of God and the covenant of God came to His people, the Mosaic Covenant particularly, but it came with the command to obey but not the power to obey. And so therefore, their sin continually led them in this downward spiral that brought the judgment of God. In the New Covenant, the glorious reality is this, is what... We are unable to do because of our sin. Christ accomplished for us through his obedience, through his death. There is no longer the daily sacrifices of blood and bulls of goats. This is Hebrews 8 through 10. There is the once for all sacrifice of Christ by which our sins have been forever forgiven, forever removed, forever cleansed. And here then he's saying participation in this new covenant, the reality is marked by two things. One, your obedience 
And in that obedience, you show yourself to be a people who have been redeemed by God, cleansed by his blood. So much to say there, but let's move that last point. And so we stand in the fullness of grace. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And we'll just mention that last point, that we have a present fullness of the reality of grace. This was a common greeting at this time, of, or among even particularly Jewish writers, But it doesn't mean it here as a common greeting. He can't. Not after such profound descriptions of our redemption in Christ. Which will continue in verse 3. He is here to say, Remember that you are a people who stand in grace. Who have peace with God. And you are to experience that and know that to the fullest measure. And be faithful. Know that you are beloved of God. Who is at work in your life. Well, the men will come and take, bring the elements. And let's remember that great grace that we've received in Christ in the table. As I pray and the men pass out the elements, be sure to pray and commit yourself afresh to the Lord. Remember his sacrifice on our behalf. Confess your sins. And do not take the table in an unworthy manner. Remember, this table is for believers. It is for those who are in Christ. If you are not yet a Christian, then let the, table, let the elements pass. Pass. If you are a Christian but living a disobedient life or holding on to a sin that you are unwilling to repent of, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that you then take and eat these things in judgment to yourself. So make sure that your heart is right and pure before the Lord and take these elements as an act of worship. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word and this reminder of the table, our Lord Jesus, which you established for our encouragement, for our comfort, for our hope for our holiness as we come to you with hearts longing to be clean and in deep and intimate fellowship with you that we might live faithfully in this world. To that end, I pray that you would work among us. In your name, amen.